Welcome to City Bible Church. My name is Marwan. I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, what a joy to be together uh, here this morning uh, and as we bring our series in the book of Zephaniah to a close. When we began the book of Zephaniah, I, I wasn't sure what the response would be. Now, of course, I, I expected that God would be faithful to bear fruit in our lives through his word, but I wasn't sure exactly what that would look like. And, and I want to say that I've been encouraged by so much of your feedback. And, and again, I hope that this is just more evidence that God speaks to us through his word. And that his words, though they were written thousands of years ago, are incredibly relevant for our lives today. Some of you have asked, uh, I missed a sermon. How can I listen to one of the sermons? Everything is available online on the website. And so uh, you can even test the Lord's words by listening again and seeing, yes, this, this applies directly today to my personal life, to the country I live in, to the things happening in the region are very applicable. They are life-giving words. This morning, we're looking at Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 again. And so let's remember together what we considered last week. The main point from last week is that our God dwells with his people. Right? We are his people, and he is with us, not only today, but forever. That is the hope that we have in Christ. Now, we consider that his presence among his people is directly connected to his salvation, and that our God is mighty to save. He, he didn't give us tools to save ourselves. He didn't send someone to help us out. No, he himself came down. Now, I wonder if any of you would think, well, he's God. He had to. Right? He, he's obliged to. It's his duty to do so. It's not a matter of love or delight, but it's a matter of duty. Well, I think and I hope and I expect that the rest of verse 17 will correct and clarify that thinking. The book of Zephaniah, and therefore our sermon series, as we're following the, the text directly, it began with judgment, and it comes to an end in delight. Now, this isn't for me to uh, too sharply bring a contrast between both judgment and delight, or justice and joy, because we know that they're related. And we consider together that God's salvation comes through judgment, but there certainly is a, a difference in tone between those two. And we'll consider that, consider that this morning. Friends, let me prepare you and your hearts for beauty this morning. More, more beauty than we will be able to grasp together. Not only because of the limit of time that we have, but just because of what we're able to grasp of God is, is more than, than we can. But even in these glimpses of beauty, my hope is that you will sense the goodness and the love of God. My hope is that as we dwell on his love for us, our love for God would grow. I pray that we'll begin to live in the truth and the power of his love and that our lives will be lived as children in a home, not as slaves in a field. That we will live out of love and confidence, not out of fear and doubt. 
Friends, we are gathered today, whether we recognize it or not, because we desperately need the truth of God's word to combat the lies that we hear in this world. And so we gather together this morning as believers have for millennia to worship God by sitting under his preached word. And so let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to go to God's word. Would you pray with me? O Lord, our God, you are both in the heavens and in our hearts, and we are, uh, we are aware of our lack, of our inability to fully understand and comprehend who you are and what you've done and your beautiful works towards us and in all of your creation. So we ask for your help this morning. Speak to us through your word. Give us ears to hear your voice. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Look with me to our passage for this morning. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. Now, we we looked at the first line last week. And so today we'll focus on these last three phrases. And and I'm sure you noticed with me, whether you're a Bible scholar or not, that there was a repetition, right? He will. He will. He will. And so those three he wills will serve as an outline for our sermon this morning as we work through this verse, through our text. But but let me start by giving you the main point. Let let me tell you in the beginning, right up front, how this whole sermon connects together and makes sense. It's it's our punchline, if you will. I'm not going to wait till the end, but I'm going to give it to you here in the beginning. God delights in us because he delights in Jesus. God delights in us because he delights in in Jesus. And, and we've seen over and over again in Zephaniah how the prophecies have both a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And as we consider God's affection towards us, his joy and his delight, his quieted love, these are eternal truths and eternal realities because he delights in Jesus. And ultimately, in, in the deepest sense, God delights in us, in you and in me, because we're in Jesus. Now, a a clarification is is needed here. In a room this size, I I would imagine that some of you might be wondering, what does it mean to be in Jesus? And so let's, let's consider it together. The Bible describes two groups of people, and ultimately only two groups of people. Those who are in Adam, right, the first human, And those who are in the new and better Adam, as is described in the book of Hebrews, Jesus, the perfect human. And the idea of being in either Adam or in Jesus, it's it's about union. It's about identity. It's about representation and belonging. It's about inheritance. So those who are in Adam are identified by sin. Their end is the same as Adam's was, right? Separation from God. 
and cursed under God's condemnation. Now that means if, if you don't believe in Jesus, you are still under God's condemnation. And the beautiful things that we will consider in this passage today are not yours, but they can be. And we'll talk about that in just a bit. Those who are in Jesus are born again. No longer of the line that leads to death, but in Jesus we have life. That's because Jesus has loved his Father and obeyed him perfectly. And God delights in his Son. We heard it when Brother Patrick read for us this morning about Jesus' baptism. We, we, we heard that the heavens were torn open. And God the Father spoke. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Charles Spurgeon comments, He is well pleased with Jesus, well pleased with all the glorious purposes which are connected with his dear son and with those who are in him. As those who are found in Jesus, there is rest and delight for us. No condemnation, no fear. We are, the Bible declares, all together new in him, and we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And that's why God is well pleased with us and so delights in us. Let's now get to the text, and let me ask you to look with me to the first verse, uh, sorry, the first phrase, our first he will. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will rejoice over you with gladness. The he will, in all three phrases that we're considering, speak to God's desire and ability. When, when God wills something, he's both choosing to do it, because nothing and no one can force him to do something he doesn't desire, but he's also declaring that he is able to do it, right? He will do it. Now, often for us, we may want to do something for ourselves or, or for others, but just because we want to doesn't guarantee that it will be done. But that's not the case for God. God is always able. So when he says he will, he will. The story of Jesus healing the leper came to mind as I was preparing. Look with me to Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. It should be on the screen, or of course you can turn your Bible. <clears throat> when he came down from the mountain, speaking of Jesus, large crowds followed him. And right away, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing. Be made clean. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Friends, uh, know this morning that if you come to Jesus for salvation, he will save you. He is able to save you, and the answer is always yes. He will never reject those who come to him for life. We can rest in that. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Now notice with me that the text doesn't say he will rejoice with you, but over you. What does that tell us? 
Well, even when we find that there's no reason to rejoice. Or the times when we have nothing within us to make us rejoice, He rejoices over us. Remember our main point. God delights in us because He delights in Jesus. And we can say the same thing about rejoicing. Right? God rejoices over us because He rejoices over Jesus. But there's more for us to consider than just saying Jesus is the main point, and so let's keep looking at him. We can dig in and consider, why aren't we always rejoicing? Well, there's a million reasons, isn't there? I'm sure. It might be that you're in the middle of a situation right now that is causing grief or anxiety. It might be a past situation that you haven't been able to yet recover from or you're still dealing with. You might be worrying about something that needs to happen soon. And so you're concerned and distracted and unable to rejoice. There's so much brokenness in our world. Injustices abound. Sin in our lives. And yet, scriptures declare that God rejoices over us. Too often our eyes only see a moment. We can only see the situation that we are in the middle of. And since we can't always see God working, we can struggle to believe that he even knows the situations we're in. And if he knows, we're not sure if he'll do anything about it. We can't see the light in the middle of the darkness. The end seems too far off. But God who sees the end from the beginning, knows what will come from our present trouble, and so he rejoices. He sees the greater end. He sees what ultimately matters. And and we can reflect for this point on one of the most powerful images and stories in the Bible. The, the, The story of the father and his lost son. The story of the prodigal in Luke chapter 15. It's a story of a father who has two sons. And the younger son has grown tired of living under his father's house. He wanted to be the captain of his own ship, right? The master of his own life and live his own life. And so he told his father to give him his inheritance, what was coming to him now instead of later so that he can leave, so he can live his life. Now, what that translates for us, what he's basically telling the father is, I don't care about you. I only want what you give me, and this entire relationship is just a waiting game for me. You are a means to an end, and I would just prefer that you'd be dead so I can get my inheritance, right? That's Inheritance comes and is given once a person dies. And so he's saying, I would rather have your things than you. And so what we can say is that he is a foolish and hurtful boy. And yet his father obliged. The younger son, we're told in the story, wastes his wealth in foolish ways. And eventually he lost all he had. And it's at that point that he comes to the realization of the wrong that he's done. He wasn't able to see before, but he's able to see now. He realized that his father was good, and his father was good to him. Even there, in the lowest moment of his life, he considered how his father's servants were so well cared for 
And so he decided to return. He decided to return and ask his father if he could work for him. Now the younger son, the foolish son, knew that there is no possibility to return as a son after all that he'd done. That, that, that wasn't even a possibility in his mind. But maybe, just maybe because his father was so good and so gracious that he would accept him as a servant. And being a servant in his father's house was better than the life out in the world apart from his father. And so the plan was set. He would return and he would apologize and we can pick up the story from that point. Luke 15 Verses 20 through 24. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring out the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. While the son was weeping in his father's arms, his father was rejoicing over him. His father is not worried about the things that are troubling his son. Now, of course he cares. It's clear from the passage that he does. But he's not concerned with them because they're all over now. He's able to see the end. He's able to see what matters most. He sees his son and he rejoices over his son. He throws a party to celebrate. All while his son is still not in a place where he feels able to rejoice. This is the gladness that God has for us because we are his children through Jesus. And as it's been said, let us rise in faith to share in the joy of the Lord. Secondly, our second he will. He will be quiet in his love. He will be quiet in his love. There are a couple of different translations and wordings of this line in verse 17. Some will say he will rest in his love. Others will say he will quiet you by his love. But he will be quiet in his love is the most literal and direct translation. But in all the cases, the primary point is still the same. Right? This is poetic language. And, and the poetry here, the beauty here is meant to invoke imagery. The, the, the sense of this phrase is that God, in his love for us, is at peace. There is rest and satisfaction when he thinks of us. God, when he looks to you, and to you, and to you, has such a deep love for you that there is nothing to say. A joy that's too deep for words. A rested and quieted love. And, and one memory that came to mind as I was reflecting on this truth was the day that Noah was born, our, our first child. After all the commotion and excitement and all the work that I did on that day, 
Um, yeah, you can laugh. It's, it's, it's appropriate. Uh, Noah was swaddled and asleep, and I held him. So small and so light, I just looked at him and didn't speak a word. The deep and quiet love that parents have for their children, the, the love that spouses share, love that many of you have felt at different times in your life, is nothing in comparison to God's love for each one of us. So I ask, do you believe that God has such a love for you? Now, we can't fully comprehend the depth of such a love by God. We can relate it to being a parent and a child and, and, and love of a marriage, but, but our love is always broken to some degree. It's not pure. So I'm not asking, can you understand that God can have such a deep love? Because we can't. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm asking if you believe that God can love you in this way. And I'm sure that you struggle to believe this because I sometimes struggle to believe this. You, like me, might believe that this is generally true. right? You, you, you probably believe that God is able to have this kind of love and that it is true for others, but you struggle to believe that God loves you in this way. If you are in Christ, it is a declaration that he does, a certainty that he does, and that he will never stop loving you. Now, the reason that you doubt is for the same reasons that you have trouble rejoicing, right? You know your sins, the sins that only you know. You know your situation. You know the many ways that you have failed. But think with me about how this works because it's important for us to work through these doubts so that we can see the truth of Christ. Can your sin ever make Jesus stop loving you? Now, if this was the case, he would have stopped loving you a long time ago. If Jesus ever intended to cast you away because of your sin, why would, you, why would he have ever brought you into his family? Why would he have ever loved you in the first place? Listen to Paul's words from Romans chapter 8. He writes, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am persuaded, and that's why we need to think together. We need to persuade one another. We need to believe with deep conviction that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing that can separate us from God's love for us through Jesus. I was waiting for an amen. I know we're not a church that says amen, but just it felt like there was a need for an amen there. Amen. amen. Friends, Christ will keep ever faithful to those upon whom he has set his heart's affection. 
And let me read that again. Christ will keep ever faithful to those upon whom he has set his heart's affections. If Christ has set his heart on you, he'll be forever faithful to you. And so, dear Christian brother and sister, rest and be comforted in Christ's love for you. It will never be taken away. Be quiet in the love of God. Third, he will delight in you with singing. He will delight in you with singing. You see that these three points are the three lines directly from verse 17. And so the beautiful imagery continues from being quiet in love to delighting in singing. We, we see a, a full picture, don't we? Right? There's a fullness of delight and of love and of satisfaction. God goes from silence to song. But what does that mean that God delights in us with singing? I think it's important that we don't speculate too much because there's meant to be mystery in this imagery. It's poetic language. And the focus of this phrase isn't God singing as much as it is God delighting. And yet, God singing is worthy of a few words, isn't it? God sings. Our God is a singing God. We see here in Zephaniah that God the Father sings in delight. We read in the Gospel of Matthew that God the Son sang a hymn with his disciples after the Passover meal. Right before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and was betrayed, he sang. Well, what about God the Spirit? Listen to Ephesians chapter 5. Be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. God the Spirit sings in and through us, the church, especially as we gather together. Now, when we think about singing, what's the difference between song and just speech, right? It denotes deep emotion, doesn't it? Right? Think about the songs that you listen to and the songs that you sing. Songs about heartbreak. Songs about love. Songs when you're happy. I'll spare you from any song references that came to mind. Uh, too many classic R&B songs just flooded my mind as I'm preparing and thinking of all the times I would sing with deep emotion. Um, and also I'm realizing that it's getting harder and harder not to age myself with these references. I was going to spend time and look at like, new songs to say, oh, like you guys know that song, right? And so, okay, yeah, the pastor's still hip. Where's Pastor Enwar? Uh, as, as, as I've been now uh, dubbed with that title. But I, 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 I'm not, and I didn't do that. Uh, but, but we know, right? We know the songs that we sing at the times that we sing them because we have emotion that we're trying to express. And sometimes spoken words just aren't enough to express what you feel. But words in melody and harmony and song, there's something special about that. There's a difference between speaking and singing. And so when we think about God singing, there's something different here than, for example, the creation account, right, where God spoke everything into creation. When we think about God creating everything that was created with his spoken words, 
It's incredible to think about, but, but as we're comparing it with song, we can say, but he only spoke. Right? Think about that. The creation of the heavens didn't cause God to break out in song. Well, what did? The redemption of his people. God delights in his son and in his incredible work of redemption, of creating a people for himself, he responds in song. He delights in us because of Jesus and so he sings. Whatever that exactly looks like or means or sounds like. Now, you might be here this morning, and you're wondering, what does it mean that God redeemed his people? This concept might be new for you. And so let me tell you, because the idea of redemption is, is, is at the core of the message of Christianity. This is what we refer to as we speak of the gospel, the, the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, back in the very beginning, when Adam and Eve disbelieved and disobeyed God's word, sin and death entered the world. And all of humanity became enslaved to sin and death. There was no escape. And, and I know that some of you have felt that, maybe are even feeling it now. There is no escape from the sin that you are stuck in. Death needed to be defeated, and Jesus did that by giving his life. And that's where the idea and the concept of redemption comes from. There was a price to be paid, to be released from slavery, from sin, from death. And the price was blood. The price was life. But not just any life. It needed to be a perfect and sinless life in order to pay for sin and for death. And that's why Jesus came. That's why he lived on this earth. He needed to be tempted by sin and brokenness. And he was, and yet we know that he lived a perfectly holy life. And so when he died as a sacrifice, God accepted his life and his death. What we owed, the penalty that we owed for our sin, Jesus paid with his life. It's an act of love. And this gift of life is available to anyone who wants it. You can't earn it. There's no steps. There's no after-church program to help you understand what, what it means to earn. That's, that's, not, that's not Christianity. It's a matter of faith. If you believe that Jesus lived in your place and died in your place before God, believe that he was raised from the dead, that he did everything that was necessary to be made right in the eyes of God, if, if you put your hope and trust in Jesus, not in your efforts, your hopes for good works or, or living better or changing whatever you feel like you need to change, if you put your hope and trust in Jesus, the Bible declares that you have eternal life. So how do you do that, you might ask? You pray. You, you confess your sins to God. You confess that you thought you could make yourself right before him and you declare that you believe in Jesus and his words and what he has done. If you have questions about that, I would love to talk to you. If you have decided recently or will decide today uh, to believe in Jesus, tell the person that, you, that brought you or invited you 
If not, you can just turn. Anyone near you will, will rejoice at that. They would love to know that. And even as we think about God singing over the redeemed, the Bible also tells us that there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. How wonderful it is to repent and believe in Jesus. Well, how do we close this morning? How do we respond to these three he wills of God? Well, we, consider, we can consider, excuse me, three we wills from the text. I know that's not proper English. doesn't make sense. But his three he wills, and we'll consider three we wills from the text. Number one, we will be glad and sing. Look to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and celebrate with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. When we step back and consider the wonders of God's love and salvation and then the mysteries of his will that he would delight in us with singing. Oh, how glad we should be. And so let us be glad in the God who dwells with us and rejoices over us. Let us be glad and sing in the God who is both quiet and satisfied and rested in his love for us. Number two, we will not fear. We will not fear. Zephaniah 3, 15 and 16. The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is among you. You need no longer fear harm. Death, our greatest enemy, has been defeated. Our impossible penalty and judgment under God removed, paid for by the blood of Jesus. And so, friends, let us not live in fear, for Christ's perfect love casts out fear. We're told that the church of Jesus can boldly enter the throne room of God in heaven because of the sacrifice of Jesus. There is nothing on this earth that should make us tremble. Let us live by faith and not by fear. Thirdly and lastly, we will persevere. Look at the second half of verse 16. On that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. Don't let your hands grow weak. Now when we think of perseverance in the Bible, the first thing that should come to mind is that God will persevere us, right? He will keep us to the end because he is both the author and the finisher of our faith. Our hope in this world is that we will make it to the very end, because of Christ's victory on the cross. And yet, as we think of perseverance, we can think of it in a lesser and yet still important way. Perseverance as our call to keep going. And so in this case, the call to persevere is Christ's call to us not to grow weary. And he calls us to that because we can grow weary in this world, can't we? We can become weary and discouraged in this broken world, and yet we remember that Christ has overcome the world. And it's from that position of hope and victory that we labor. Friends, it's flawed thinking to think that we have no work or no responsibility. Of course, there is no amount of labor that can make us right 
with God. We, we can remember Paul's words in Ephesians 2. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. But he doesn't end there. He continues and says, For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. God has prepared us for good works. Good works for his glory and for the good of one another. And so church, don't let your hands grow weak. Share the gospel in confidence, knowing that God is calling his people to himself. And he is faithful to save all who call on him. Devote yourself to prayer because we know that the prayers of a righteous person avail much. Invest in your families and in one another because everything else in this world will perish. Beloved, God delights in you right now because you are in Christ. He is smiling down on you. Let us rest and live in that truth. Amen. Amen.